City Church in Over the Rhine is cultivating the kind of family Jesus introduced to the world in the city of Cincinnati. We're glad you're choosing to listen to a sermon from our weekly service. We would love to meet you. Visit us on Instagram or at citychurchotr.com. Enjoy. In uh, 2014, Catherine and I uh, moved to Las Vegas we are both from Indiana, and uh, we moved there with one big question in mind, um, and that was, there was this dream a few years before in a dorm room that had uh, kind of started rolling around some people's heads of what if one day, possibly, maybe, potentially, we might be uh, involved in planting a church. And so um, Catherine and I both met in our business school. Um, I'm finance. I was finance. She was accounting, so I like to tell people we are a blast at parties. <laughs> Invite us. And uh, so the big, the, the big hurdle for us is that doesn't seem like something that uh, people with our um, experience or pedigree or education would do, but there was an increasing tug on our hearts around this idea of, I think this is something we're supposed to be involved in. And so we moved to Las Vegas, um, left my job in corporate finance so that I could be an intern at a church plant, starting salary $600 a month. Yeah. yeah, I don't know, woo, I'm sorry, I don't know what I was looking for from you guys there, uh, but that's, that's where we began, and so we moved there again, Lord, would you reveal to us, is, is this something that we're supposed to do, and, um, and so I remember it was a couple months into being there, uh, I was in my apartment, I think it was a Saturday, Catherine wasn't there, and so what I like to do on most days off is uh, watch an action movie, and so I, uh, I'd been vaguely aware and, like, uh, from afar, a fan of the Fast and Furious movie series. Okay. <laughs> I met a lot of new people here, and you just booed me. <laughs> um, so, I have no idea anymore. No, Fast and Furious 6 had just come out, and so I was watching, I, I clicked on Fast and Furious 6, and if you don't know the premise of the movie, which I'm assuming you all do because it's cinematic gold, um, here it is. The main character, Vin Diesel, uh, also known as Dominic Toretto, and his team, his crew, what he calls them is his family, um, they are tasked with recovering this microchip that was stolen by the bad guy, classic story. Um, but what, as I'm watching the movie, here's what struck me, and I don't know if you've ever found, like, in movies, your heart almost, like, leap at certain things. My heart always gets so excited when I see a team operating, like, in a really effective, efficient way. And so I love James Bond movies, but I love Ocean's Eleven even more. I, uh, I love the idea of Superman or Batman, but I've always just been drawn to, like, oh, the Avengers. Like, there's something about when a team's working together. And so Fast and Furious 6, I'm watching... Dominic Toretto, this like great, clear, strong leader, and then Brian O'Connor, who is played by Paul Walker, um, is this ex-cop with all of this training and all of this expertise, and then Gal Gadot's in it. So before she was Wonder Woman, she was this great precision driver in Fast and Furious, and Ludacris is in it. He's this computer expert. Anyway, I'm watching the movie, and these guys are literally saving the world, and each one of them doing what only they can do, but they're doing it um, not as a team, not as, a, you know, co-workers at a company. They're doing it as a family. And, uh, and so I watched them. The last scene is them on this long runway, like this really long runway, where they're trying to prevent this plane from taking off. It's going probably 150 miles an hour. The scene lasts 15 minutes. You do the math. It's like a 30 or 40 mile runway. So it's not super realistic. 
But it's this great action scene, and at the end of it, they recover the microchip and essentially save the world. And uh, out from the like exploding plane comes the rock, classic, and he's in it too. And he works for the US government and he says, all right, Dom, Vin Diesel, he says, all right, Dom, save the world, what's your price? Basically, what can the US government do for you? And uh, Vin Diesel, in only the stoic Vin Diesel way, just mumbles four letters. 1327, which to you means nothing, but to Fast and Furious fans, we know like, oh snap, that's the house in East LA that they grew up in, that the family started being united around, and I remember they cut to a new scene, and this, again, I'm in Las Vegas, I'm asking this big question, I'm watching this action movie, and the final scene of Fast and Furious 6 is this family, not at some banquet ceremonies, not at some awards big thing, not some big dining hall, but it's them in the backyard of 1327 having a cookout. And I have a picture of it. And in that moment, now this is where I need you to be serious because this was a serious moment for me. I saw this scene after I watched this family, gifted people, save the world, doing it with people they loved and trust. And I saw this scene and literally in my apartment in Las Vegas, I felt like the Lord, the presence of God filled the room and I felt like the Lord said, that's what I want your church to be like. And again, if you have a high reverence to God, I love that, so do I. But if you can believe, God spoke to me through an action movie. He spoke to a donkey in the Old Testament so he can speak to Dominic Toretto. And I, I, I saw this scene, and, and the Lord didn't say, hey, if you end up deciding to do this thing, like I'm, I'm with you. He said, no, that's what I want your church to be like. A group of people that are gifted at something, working together for something significant, and doing it with other people that they love and trust. And I felt like the Lord said, that's what I want your church to be like. And in that moment, I, I visibly like gasped because like the presence of God was there. And so when we planted this church, there was a dream that started 10 or 11 years ago um, in a dorm room, probably 12 or 13. But it was the vision of family on mission that at least my little piece of this I brought to this church and said, man, that's what I want my church to be like. I want it to be filled with people, talented people, talented being everyone's talented at something, no one's talented at everything, talented people doing something significant with other people that they love and trust. That's the vision that this church was sort of started on two and a half years ago. And so for the next four weeks, I'm going to be preaching through our four values, but one value is the first one we listed, it's the first one we decided on, it's the value of family. Because mission, presence, formation, they're all really good, but they're done way better in the context of family. I'd much rather live on mission, go after the presence of God, be formed in the image of Jesus with people that I love and trust. And if we don't do it with people we love and trust, at best, we will burn out. At worst, it becomes an impossible task to follow Jesus. And so our first value, birthed out of really the New Testament, also birthed out of a great cinematic movie, Fast and Furious, is that we want to pursue the presence of God together as family. And the reason we've chose this word, because it's loaded, it's complicated. A few weeks ago, I preached on father wounds, and like a third of our church responded, because a lot of us have some kind of wounding or baggage around family. And still, it's the number one illustration that Jesus describes his church as. He sits around the table um, the night before he's betrayed, and he says, look, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. 
friends. He calls them family. He calls them into a household. That's how Paul describes the New Testament church in 1 Timothy 3.15. He calls the church, not the church, but he calls it God's household. And so there's a reason we chose to use this language, even though it's complicated and it might come with some baggage, is because that's what it seems like the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, others, are describing the church as. And so I want to just start with this question, and this is not meant to bring shame, just awareness, but is there a group of people that know you and that love Jesus? Is there a group of people around you that you're doing life with that know you, that love you, but also that know and love Jesus? Because if not, following him, living on mission, pursuing his presence, being formed into his image is going to be really, really difficult, and it's probably going to be, like, not fun. But there is a gift that God has given us to do this thing together. And he calls us to doing it together. And I love um, Stephanie, she's going to read, or we're going to read Ephesians 4 every um, service for the next four weeks before that. Because in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul lays out all of the incredible things that God has done through the gospel. And he's saying, look, here's what Jesus has done for you. And then he turns a corner in Ephesians 4, and he says, in light of these things, in light of what God's done for you, Here's now how we're supposed to behave. And he lays out a vision for the church. And if you could put Ephesians 4 back up there. I know you probably can't read this, but there are so many transition passages, transition phrases that Paul uses, basically to get to the end. He says, so Christ himself gave, blah, 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 to equip, so that, until, we all, then we will. All of this is reaching. It's like he's building to something. And then verse 15 is where he basically says, and here's what we're going towards. And so we want to start with the end in mind. What he's going towards in verse 15, he says, we're doing all of this. We're going to be a church to become, in every respect, the mature body of him. Ephesians 4 says the goal of doing this together, the goal of the church, the goal of the gathering, the goal of the family, is so that we become mature in Christ. And here is the best kept secret of um, what it means to mature in Christ. And I actually think that like, the enemy wants to keep this a secret is um, that maturity is fun. It is. And for 20 years, I didn't believe that. I didn't know that. I just figured if I'm going to follow Jesus, then I'm going to have to lay down all of my desires and wants, and it's going to be brutal, but at least I'll make it to heaven. And actually, the best-kept secret, maybe it's the worst-kept secret, it's a secret that I think Satan's hiding from us, but Jesus wants to reveal to us, is that actually growing up in Christ is fun. It is a joy to follow Jesus. That's a good time for an amen. It is a joy to follow Jesus. It is. It's a blast. And yet, we have been fed at times this story that I have bought into, maybe you have bought into, that no, it's, it's a bird, I and mean, we're just going to have to lay everything down, and we're going to get to heaven, but it's going to be a struggle, we're going to have to slog it out. That's true, and then there's a comma, but it is overall, overarching, it is a joy to lay things down for the sake of the kingdom of God. Andy Bird, he's a missionary, he calls this happy holiness. The holier you get, actually the happier you get. And we have the alternative picture often of the more I have become like Jesus, the less fun I'm going to have. And that's just not true. I think one mistake that um, I've made in the last couple years of this church is I think I've let a little bit, and we're going to change this, I think I've let there be a little bit too much of a culture of burden and we've responded to uh, some church hype culture or like, hey, Jesus is alive, so like you don't have to be sad anymore. Like that, we want to we get away from that. And also, I think at times we've rested a little bit too much in the like, 
it's a burden, and man, he's going to ask me to give up you know, parts of my identity, or he's going to ask me to do things I don't want to do. And that's true, but the part of the story that, that is so redemptive is that it's actually a joy to do that. It is a joy to become more like Jesus. If he is the prize, and we get more of him by becoming more like him, man, that's totally worth laying down whatever is in me and the joy and the gift that he gives us is that we get to do it together as family or friends that feel like family. And so Jesus lays this out and Jesus did it himself. He calls a group of people together and he said, hey, we're going to do this. And in Luke 6, it's a relatively inconspicuous passage. You read it and you're like, okay, that was 12 names. I think I recognize a couple of those. There's something really deep in how Jesus, the strategy that Jesus uses to call his disciples. So in Luke 6, and it's not going to be on the screen, it's basically, he lays out 12 names. He prays all night, makes one of the biggest decisions that he's going to make in his ministry. He calls 12 men, and he says, I want you to follow me. And in verse 15, he lists the name of a couple of them. He says, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot. And Jesus, if we read the full passage and we really get into like first century Jewish culture, there's a couple things that are a little bit remarkable. This is like some of the worst general management tools that we've seen anybody make in gathering a team. First, he gathers not one set, but two sets of brothers, which is just a terrible idea if you want your team to go long. This is, in sports world, this is like terrible GM. It's like the Browns. Sorry, Luke. Not only that... But then he says, I'm going to get a guy named Matthew, I'm going to get a guy named Simon, which to us is like, okay, those are two names. Matthew was a tax collector, we know that. He wrote the, the biography, the Gospel of Matthew. And in this day, the, the Jewish people, the, the country of Israel, was oppressed, controlled, lorded over by Rome. And 99% of the Jews of the time said, this is, this is not great, this is unfortunate. Because we don't get to worship our God the way we want to worship. We have to pay this, like this crazy tax to Rome. 99% of Jews thought that Rome leading them was a bad idea. And then there was 1% that said, okay, this isn't great. But if I get rid of my integrity, if I sell out my people, I actually think I could make quite a lot of money on this. Those 1% were the tax collectors. That 1% was Matthew. That's one of the people Jesus says, I want you on my team. On the other side of things, let's call him, if we're talking political landscape, this is like a progressive sellout. He, he's gone way too far one direction. And then he goes and he says, I also want you, Simon, the zealot. Zealot's not his last name. Zealot is a political title that was given to him. Zealots were people that were so opposed to the rule of Rome that they were willing to revolt at any moment, at any time. And if I couldn't get home, if I'm a zealot and I couldn't get home to get my sword, I always carried around a dagger. That's what zealots did. They always had a dagger. Just in case the revolt started, I'm stabbing somebody. That's the other guy Jesus gets on his team. So you have maybe over here in our landscape, this is a progressive thought. I'm just going to, if you can't beat him, join him. And then you have this like crazy far-right nationalist. And I want you to imagine the meeting, the first meeting that Jesus gets these 12 guys together and says, hey, look around, these guys are going to become like family, we're going to change the world, we're going to create the greatest institution known to man. 2,000 years later, there's going to be people in Cincinnati, Ohio, worshiping because of this church that's starting. I want you to imagine what Matthew and what Simon would have thought when they saw the other one. I imagine, and we don't see this in the text, I imagine one of them would have said, all right, Jesus, I'm, I'm in for this, but I'm not in for this if it involves him. There's no way. 
And we don't have language really to say how far apart these guys were. I want you to imagine getting a political think tank together and getting the leader of Antifa and the Proud Boys together and saying, hey, let's, let's come up with a new political party. That just wouldn't happen. I want you to imagine in my world, in sports, this is like getting an IU and a Purdue fan together. Go Hoosiers, right? Swifties, any Swifties here? This is like getting Taylor Swift and Kanye West together. This is like getting Taylor Swift and John Mayer together. This is like getting Taylor Swift and Spotify together. This is like getting Taylor Swift and Big Machine record label together. We all know it. She peaked after her country album, right? That's how you cut a church in half right there. This is what Jesus did. And Jesus teaches us, as he starts this new family, he taught us that the goal of family is unity, not uniformity. The goal of family is unity, not uniformity. Actually, uniformity might be a bit of a hindrance towards what he's trying to do. That means that we can go to church, we can join a house group, we can be friends with people that might look, think, and be different than us as long as there is a preeminent thought that is above everything, which is the worship of Jesus. That's the family that Jesus calls us to be like. That's the family that we want to set out for us, especially as we start this new year and say, okay, let's follow Jesus, but let's not do it alone. Let's do it in the context of other people that love him. And so Jesus shares this vision of family, and he calls us into it. And he says the primary thing we're going after, and Paul says the primary thing we're going after is maturity in Jesus. And at City Church, and if you're new here, and I met a lot of new people this morning, a little bit of our DNA is our ideal primary picture of family is actually not this. And we love Sunday mornings and what happens on a stage and in the pews. Like, this is a really, really good tool, but our primary view of family is around a dining room table or in a living room. And that's where we believe maturity probably is going to happen more than even in this room. And so we're starting um, house groups again, and, and this is not just a plug for house groups. I can't talk about what the goal of this church is without saying it is not just about what happens here on a Sunday morning. It's also about what happens around a table. And if you've been around a while, you know I've read this verse a lot, but this is our primary verse uh, for the strategy of City Church. It's Acts 5.42, Luke's writing, and he's kind of summarizing some of the crazy growth that the church is seeing, and he says, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And this verse, more than anything else, has shaped the way that we want to do church here. Number one, it says day after day, there is a frequency to their meeting. That means if we want everything that Jesus has for us, if we want the maturity and the family that he's called us to be about, it's probably not going to happen just on a Sunday morning. And it's certainly not going to happen like 1.3 Sunday mornings a month for the average Christian that goes to church. It's going to be more frequent than that. Jesus, or I'm sorry, Luke says, no, there was a frequency to their meeting and there was a dichotomy. There was the temple courts and they were meeting in house to house. They were meeting in a large gathering and a small gathering. They were doing this kind of corporate teaching and worship and they were doing probably a little bit more of a communal prayer-based thing. In the temple courts that could hold a few hundred, if not maybe a thousand, and then a home that could hold 20, 30, maybe 50 at most. And if we look and want to be like the early church, they had a rhythm 
that we want to just, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We want to copy that. Large and small. Large and small. And so the primary strategy for maturity, for family, for the things we're going after here is we want to gather here together because there's something really powerful that happens in a big room with someone that has a whole week or two weeks to prepare a message in a band that isn't going to come to your living room on a Wednesday night and testimonies that we all get to share and hear together. There's something really special about what happens here. And not every function of the church is best happening here. The one another's are just going to happen better in a living room. Praying over each other is probably just going to happen better in a living room. The breaking of bread is just going to happen better in a living room. And so our primary strategy, if you want to see behind the curtain at City Church, is we want to gather large and we want to gather small. And so if you've not been in a house group, now this is me shamelessly plugging. You need to get in a house group. If you are only here on a Sunday morning, you will get exactly 50% of what this church has to offer. And I would say, if anything, it is the worst 50%. Our secret sauce is the ways that we've formed our house groups and copied, basically copied the house church movement that's happening in Iran, Afghanistan, India, all over the world. And we've said, no, we want that as our small group model. So these are pastors of small churches. These are small churches meeting in living rooms. They're not your average Bible study or small group. So if you don't like small groups, if you don't like Bible studies, that's okay. I think you still might like house groups. This is the way we're choosing to live out Ephesians 4 and saying, okay, if maturity's the goal, if family's the, the way we get there, we want to do it in circles, not just rows. We want to do it in living rooms, not just in pews. So every family is called to pursue maturity. Um, also every family, and this is more of just a little bit of a heads up and announcement, um, every family has leaders. And about three times a year, I do um, a business meeting or a family chat where I give us kind of the state of our church, what we're going after. And I think it was like six months ago, I said, uh, I was telling you guys, we are planted by a group called the Orchard Group. There is a team of people, uh, they're called our management team, and they are the ones that govern this church. They're the ones that have the ability to fire me, which is important. You come to a church, you want to know that your pastor can be fired. Um, And they are the ones that help give guidance to where we're going. And I said, eventually, the goal of this team, which is made up of external pastors and leaders from all over the country, We want to start replacing them with internal leaders. And so I wanted to give an update as we start the new year. We have two internal leaders on that team, uh, Jeff Arrington and Ben Oliai. So can we thank them for joining that? And Jeff and Val, can you stand up? Ben, no Mandy? Baby. Mandy's on um, maternity leave, but she works here. So this is Ben, this is Jeff, and Val, we'd love to see you, yeah. Thank you. You guys can sit down. So Jeff and Ben um, joined our team a couple months ago, and, and here's, what, here's why you should care about this. Uh, one, because they go to this church, they get the DNA. One of the things we wanted from our first two members is they've been around since before this church has started. So Jeff and Val, I met them when we first moved here. They've hosted us for dinners. I actually think even when Ben and Mandy flew in to see if they wanted to be a part of this church, they stayed at Jeff and Val's house. Jeff led a church um, in Cincinnati for about 20 years, so he has way more church experience than all of us, and they've probably painted more walls in this building than anybody else. That's like what they've chosen to do as they've been parts of this church, and there was a moment that Jeff was just happy still painting walls, and I would love for you just to keep doing that, but I said, Jeff, I really would love for you to be on this team, and there is a humility and a wisdom on Jeff that our church needs. Um, Also with Ben, who has been around and moved here to be a part of this church. They moved from Las Vegas, him and Mandy. And I remember they went to our church that uh, I was the pastor of in Vegas, 
I remember I went back once to do a wedding like six months after moving here, and, uh, and they were kind of rooted on the West Coast. They had three kids at the time, and Ben came up to me after church one day, and he said, hey, just so you know, we're thinking about moving to Cincinnati. And the funny thing is I hadn't asked him to. <laughs> I still haven't, actually. And, uh, and I started laughing, and he said, in only a way that Ben and Vin Diesel could, he said, no, I'm serious. <laughs> and he was. He was serious, and they moved here to be a part of this church, and I don't know many people that love City Church more than Ben. He is the caretaker of this building for zero dollars a month. He's our facilities director. He cares, loves, prays for this, prays for this church a lot. And in inviting Jeff and Val onto this team, again, just so you know, we wanted wisdom, and we wanted people that loved our church, and we didn't want yes men. Both of these guys, this is part of the prereq that I had in my mind that I didn't tell them, have pushed back on something I've done in a loving, caring, but also firm way. And that's what you want in a team, is not just people that are going to rubber stamp. And so both of these guys have done that. And actually, after um, they got voted on to this board, I told Ben congratulations. And his very first phrase to me was, I'm really happy to be on the team that can now fire you. So <laughs> that's Ben. And I'm hoping I don't regret that decision. Um, if you could, thank uh, after church, thank Jeff, thank Ben. They're not doing this for the pay. It's not paid. They're doing this because they love the church and they love our church. And so thank them for being a part of this team. Because as a family, we don't just want one person that says it and it happens. We want to be led from within, not just through our house group leaders and our volunteers, but we want to be led within by people that we really trust. And so these are two men that I think you can trust because I really trust them. And so make sure you thank them for what they're doing for our church. So Ephesians 4 says the goal of the church is maturity, and the, the primary mode we're going to get there is through family. And I just want to ask this question um, as we start to think about the church, and this is kind of the last big point I want to make, is how does your view of church change when you know that maturity is the goal? How does your view of, fam of church change when you figure out that the goal is family, I'm sorry, is maturity, not comfort? Because that's the goal that Paul sets out when he calls us into the church, is that we want to become more like Christ. And over the next three weeks, I have a Venn diagram. We're going to be talking through this thing, this Venn diagram around our other three values, um, presence, formation, and mission. This is what we're going to be talking about, and this is, this is brilliant, by the way, and I can say that because I didn't make it. It's a pastor in New York named John Tyson. He made this. It's a lot of our values, and we've sort of defined maturity as that middle of the Venn diagram. This is what it means to fully be formed, pursuing the presence of Jesus together, is to be in the middle of that. And so for the next three weeks, we're talking around this. But here's the, the big thing I want to get across this morning, is that if maturity is the goal, then we want to do this as family. And I want to throw out um, an image that I'm going to be bringing up the next few weeks. It's the image of what happens around a table. 
what happens when um, we eat a meal together. And I want you to think, if you eat a meal alone, um, what are all of the steps that go into preparing for a meal? I mean, you have to shop for food first, and then you have to cook it. Maybe you have to grill, you have to mix, you have to set the table, you have to do the dishes. There's a lot of work that goes into a meal. And so we have two other options when we um, choose to eat a meal. One, we could go to a restaurant, or we could have other people over and we can kind of do the meal thing together. I want to liken what uh, the mindset of church is to one of those two things. Is it like going to a restaurant or is it like having people over for dinner? When you go to a restaurant, the reason you do that, and it's pretty obvious, is that you pay people to do the things that you don't want to do. When you go to a restaurant, you pay so that you don't have to shop for food, cook the food, do the dishes afterwards, right? I mean, imagine the, the ridiculousness of at the end of a nice meal, they bring you the check and the server says, hey, do you want to wash or do you want to dry? You want, you want to dry? Yeah, okay, I'll get you a towel. I mean, that's crazy, right? The whole reason you go to a restaurant is so that you pay them to take care of the problem that you didn't want to deal with. I want you to compare that with when you have some of your best friends over or Thanksgiving meal with your family. What happens around that table that makes it different? All of the same things still have to get done. There still has to be shopping and cooking and cleaning and dishes and setting the table. The difference is, of course, that now we're doing it together. At a business, when you go to a business, you make your problem their problem. In family, when you do it together, your problem now becomes all of our problems. And the problem in uh, the Western church is that we often view the church's job as taking care of my problem, which is maturity. And that's just not true. The reason you go to a restaurant is to pay somebody else to do what you want, don't want to do. The reason you come to church could be, or at least the ways that the American church or the Western church has propagated this, is I'm going to go there and they're going to feed me and they're going to help me with my problem of becoming more mature in Christ. And that's just not how church works. If church was a business primarily, then that would be the goal. But church is family. And the reason that you go to family is not so you get rid of your problems, but so that you can take care of your problems together. And when we see church as a business, that means the goal is convenience. But convenience or comfort is not the goal of the church. But when we see church as family, the goal now becomes what Paul lays out in Ephesians 4, which is maturity. And because we're after that, we choose to see church not primarily as a business or somewhere that just come, I get to come and they feed me, but we see this as something that we come and we get to do this together. And we really authentically believe everyone has something to offer and everyone has something to do here as a family. Businesses take care of your problems, but family takes on your problems together. And when you isolate, when you choose to isolate, your problem is still your problem, Right? When you go to a business, your problem, you pay them to make it their problem. But the beauty of family is now I get to struggle through my problems together with each one of you. Maturity is a struggle. And I think we've sat there for a little bit. But maturity is also a joy when we get to pursue it together. That's what City Church is about. I met a lot of new people this morning. If you're wondering what this church is about, we are after the fullness of Jesus but we really are convinced that the best way we can get there is to pursue it together. We really authentically think pursuing that together is the best way. Paul wrote Ephesians 4, um, but then 35 years later, 
uh, a guy named John writes the book of Revelation, and he writes um, a portion of it, and it's Jesus' words. He writes it back to that same church. 35 years later, same church, church in Ephesus. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, I love so many of the things that you're doing. This is a 35-year-old church now at this point. They've grown. They've gotten really good at ministry. They're doing cool stuff in the city. And Jesus says, look, I love the ministry that you're doing. I love the way you're doing this. I love the way that you haven't bought into that. But then he has this, and it's a pretty famous verse in uh, Revelation 2.4. Jesus says, but there is one thing I do want to talk about. There's one thing that I want to make sure that we get above anything else. He says, yet I hold this against you, church at Ephesus. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. And what Jesus is essentially saying is, look, there used to be something that you guys were about, rather someone that you guys were about, that you don't seem to quite be about anymore. It seems like you've replaced the man for a method. You've replaced passion with busyness. You've replaced strategy, or love with strategy. He said, that's not what we want to be about anymore. He said, you're doing good ministry, but there is something about pursuing Jesus together and actually pursuing me that is going to be preeminent above everything else. And here's what's scary about Revelation 2 is it looks like we can become a good, we can be portrayed as good Christians and still not be all about Christ. And what's really scary, this should scare us as a church family. You can be a healthy church according to the standards of healthy church. You can be the church in Ephesus and it still not be a church that is fully pleasing to Jesus because we have forsaken that one thing. And I copy and pasted these notes from the first sermon that we gave um, two and a half years ago. And I read it and I thought, you know what, this is still exactly what we want to be about. I said this two and a half years ago, September of 2020. I said at City Church that we must be all about Jesus. And as we pursue family, mission, presence, formation, that's still true. We must be all about Jesus. And so we're going to take a moment to worship. And uh, more than even this idea of family, I want us to just be reminded, and maybe you need to just re-up, I'm re-upping my commitment, my love, my passion for Jesus alone. And we want to primarily go after that more than anything else. We want to go after a love and an authenticity of Jesus more than we even want to pursue being a good, healthy church that does ministry well. And so um, we're going to worship and we're going to sing, Jesus, we love you. And I want you to, in your heart, re-up that commitment that you do. You do love Jesus. He is so worth pursuing. And we always have the front available. I would love if you want to change your posture to come up here and just bow before the proverbial throne of Jesus and say, no, I'm still in for him. I'm still all in for him. Family, mission, presence, formation, but it's all around the throne of Jesus. There's going to be people that are available to pray in all four corners. Don't come in with a burden and leave with the same burden. These people want to pray for you. And then as always, we have the Lord's table available in all four corners where we need to every now and then just remind ourselves of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And so here's what I'd love. I'd love for us to stand. And if you're comfortable, I would love for anybody that wants to respond up front and say, no, I'm still all in for him. I wanna change my posture as a representation of the way that I'm changing my heart. But we wanna remind ourselves in this new year that we are still all about Jesus. So let's worship him. Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Sunday service. 
If we can serve you in any way, please visit our website at citychurchotr.com. If you want to be a part of what God is doing in Cincinnati, you can support us financially. Giving can also be done on our website at citychurchotr.com give.